Directing Shakespeare Symposium. What's it all about, Willie? Part 1. On April 28, 2001, Arthur Bartow sat down with Michael Lupu, Mark Bly, Louis Sheeter, and Daniel Fish to discuss the relationship between director and dramaturg at work on a production of Shakespeare. Hello, I'm SDC Director Walter Bobby, and you are listening to Masters of the Stage. This program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and presented by the American Theatre Wing. The SDCF has released these archives in an effort to further education regarding the crafts of direction and choreography. Because this program was not initially recorded for the purpose of broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. Portions of the conversation may have been edited to improve the overall quality of the broadcast. I'm going to introduce the panelists first. This, uh, come in, Michael, please. As you can see, uh, some of us have arrived late, and so we're just meeting each other for the first time, but everybody knows their duty. Uh, I'm Arthur Bartow. We're going to open the uh, discussion today uh, about dramaturgs, their role uh, in assisting the director, and then we're going to open it to your questions uh, shortly. Last night, Libby Apple uh, gave us three words of advice. She said, the text, the text, the text. And our response is, but how, but how, but how, but how do we start? And so these people are going to help us to get clues of how they have started in working with the text. And so, uh, uh, Michael, since I'm going to let you relax for a moment and give it back to you, I'm going to start with Mike, uh, uh, Mark and ask all of our panelists to describe to us their vision of what a dramaturg is and does. You know, uh, playwrights came along about 4,000 years ago, actors about 3,000 years ago, directors about 120 years ago, and dramaturgs in this country are a fairly new phenomenon, about 25 or 30 years in this country. So they're the new kid on the block, uh, and perhaps like the director who immediately took over as soon as he appeared, uh, the dramaturg may be doing the same thing in terms of classical work. So Mark, could you give us a description of your work and what you believe the role of the dramaturg is? I'll, I'll try to. It, uh, what a dramaturg is, what a dramaturg does, is really one of the most asked questions of the 20th century and now we're getting into the 21st century. And, uh, but I think, I think it's a, a lot that has been said in the last 25 years about what the dramaturg is. I, I tried to refine that definition over the years, and, and it's, it, it, it resists refining, I think. I think that says something great about the profession. It's a very messy business being a dramaturg. And, and uh, having said that, I will say a couple of being, when I felt that what I did matter as a dramaturg, working either at the Guthrie Theater, Seattle Rep, or the Yale Repertory Theater, it's always been with somehow the work that I've done, the research up front, the textual work, the sharing of my thoughts, uh, of the connection to play to our own society, my thoughts about the acting values, the directing values, and even occasionally the design values, so I'm a little cautious always about that. Uh, that. That if I've mattered, it's usually because I've helped somehow to enrich, deepen the field of, of discovery and discourse about the 
play that we're working on. Now, that's my primary task. There are a lot of dramaturgs, including myself, I suppose, 10 years ago, that might have given a definition that said really baldly and boldly and perhaps a little pompously, uh, the dramaturg is that artist who helps to shape sociological, acting, directing, design, uh, textual values for play. And that is certainly one definition. It's a very large one. Uh, I think I've tended to pull back from that a little bit to this other place about helping to create a field of discovery and discourse that is going to allow, ultimately, some interesting action on the stage. And that's, that's what it's all focused toward. I have uh, one other quick thing to say, and what others do their definitions that, that really is, there's a, every time I, I encounter Shakespeare, we start to do Shakespeare, I, I think about this uh, poem of, of John Keats's, uh, I apologize for the pronunciation, Lamia, Lamia, L-A-M-I-A, surely some uh, romantic scholar here can help out of that. But uh, at the tail end of this poem, there's this little odd little quirky passage in which Keats is perhaps reacting against the encroachment of over-rationalization in the 19th century, the Industrial Revolution, uh, rationalization, 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 dissection, dissection, dissection. And, and at the tail end of this little, this little one passage, he has a great phrase where, uh, to paraphrase, borrow a little bit from Eliot, he says, to dare unweave a rainbow. And that's what sometimes I feel like when I encounter Shakespeare. And yet, you know something? You've got to get over that as well. Because you need to connect to the work. You've got to get in there, tear it apart, and do a little bit what Greg talks about, uh, not so much worrying uh, about, you know, will we sell tickets, will we do this, but figuring out how we can make the spectators more aware of the world. And that, too, is part of my job at this problem. Sounds often being pompous, but very pompous. Mark, would you say that your, uh, uh, where you come from is basically an American point of view? Because I think that we sort of inherited the European, the dramaturg from Europe, and in those theaters, they often are also can be the artistic director of the theater or be in a revolving position so that they take over for a number of years. Would you say that, that your education and your point of view is American or European? Or? Well, I don't see how anyone could have had a more densely uh, European training than I have. I, I went to the Yale School of Drama, I went to all of those cliche hoops about being a dramaturg is this, the dramaturg is the in-house critic, the in-house intellectual, all of those things which I have tried to try to get away from my work. Uh, after leaving there, I uh, ended up eventually working alongside of Michael for nine years. A great privilege to, to work with Michael, to learn from Michael. And yet, although Michael is perhaps on some level as quintessential European dramaturg as you can get, I learned, I think, just the opposite. I think I learned to be an American dramaturg from my working with Michael and, and actually Lee Uchula. And what that means is, is, is a little more detailed. Maybe later I'll come back to that. But, uh, 
I ask that question simply because I'd like to segue next to you, Michael, and then take the directors uh, later in sequence, because knowing that you were Romanian-born, I just wondered if there was a different point of view in approaching your task. Well, I hit with a few grenades and a few bombs. <laughs> Number one, there were no dramaturgs in Romania except those who were called dramaturgs and are in Romanian. The word dramaturg means flavor. Shakespeare is a dramaturg, not Michael Luke. Arthur Miller is a dramaturg, not Michael Luke. Or anyone who took the German word dramaturg and applied it in our continuous search for titles. <laughs> I've been saying that, and in spite of my strenuous efforts to cut the branch on which we are sitting, so many, not, actually not that many, a number of us, I still cannot manage to cut the branch <laughs> in French, in Italian, in Romania. In other languages, the word for playwright is dramaturg. The word for what we do was literary advisor, literary director, literary secretary, etc. The Germans came to this word because in German you have two other words, just like in English, playwright and dramatist. So it was. I believe a word floating freely through the dictionary, and you cannot let that happen. <laughs> God forbid. You have to put it somewhere, so on the T, they put dramaturg, and here we have it. And we, in, in fact, the first known historic dramaturg was hired to read plays, but was a playwright himself. Less him, if I'm not mistaken. And he wrote a book that ended up being called Hamburg dramaturgy, because he was hired at the Hamburg Theater, and did what some of us who are not so lazy write very actively. Others who are lazy avoid writing reports on plays and reviews. And that ended up as a book quite insightful and remarkable book, because he talked about what today we call classics, but also the contemporary plays he got, which became classics. So, so uh, I I cringe usually when we divide in neat slices what is Eurocentric, what is African American, what is African, not African American, what is. I talked to a friend of mine, playwright from Nigeria. He protested very angrily when I said that he is a Nigerian writer. No, he is a writer, a Yoruba writer. So all these cubicles and windows and I am from Romania, but I have been in Romania for seven, for, since 71 when I left. Once, So, what am I Romania about? I was asked to talk about Romanian theaters. And I, did I do But then, let me give you my background so you know it. I was fired from my job as a drama critic for a silly. I call it mistakes, they call it an act of enmity and social development. <laughs> <laughs> I got a job after waiting three months and setting my own conditions at that time with the theater in the literary department. And that's a 
I've ever heard of a dramaturg is um, the person who's smarter than the artistic director, but isn't the artistic director. <laughs> um, and, and that's basically what... what <laughs> I'm serious. They usually are, aren't they? I mean, they're usually really smart people. Um, and I'm always looking for someone who's smarter than I am. Um, because I think this gets into something we'll talk about tomorrow uh, in terms of how to use uh, teams of uh, coaches. And Libby Apple last night started getting into the question of you know, the team that you have to put together to do these plays. Um, and and uh, I have an abiding love for Broadway musicals uh, as well as Shakespeare. And um, uh, I think of it as the same way, that you would never think about directing a musical by yourself. You know, you've got, you've got your music director, you've got, your, you've got this enormous team because the, the project is just so, so large. And um, uh, that, that's why I, I very often think about the plays. But to, directly, to go to this thing about the dramaturg, uh, for me, I'm in the process of working out a relationship with a new dramaturg because the dramaturg we have at the classical studio, uh, I worked with for nine years. I previously worked with Juilliard, and he moved on. And uh, so I think it's a very personal thing as well. Um, you know, who that person is, what that chemistry is. Um, uh, obviously, you use one, uh, a drum term, as a sounding board. One of the big questions to my mind is always, where do you put the intermission? Where, where, do, you, where do you break the play? Uh, because I've seen productions that have foundered, I, I, in my opinion, because the, the intermission breaks sort of makes it about a different character. I just saw A Merchant of Venice uh, the other night, uh, in which, to my mind, way of thinking, the, the director trying to make the play about, um, about Shylock instead of about Portia, uh, broke the play, what I thought, just a little too early, rather than at the end of the scene at Belmont where the marriage is about to take place and then interrupted, um, where, to my mind, the play would do instead of put it with Portia uh, instead of Shylock. But, I, you know, these questions and the question of uh, a sounding board as well. The other question that always intrigues me is the relation of the dramaturg to the actor. Because Libby talked last night about all that preparation work, about putting a text together, uh, you know, all those weeks of work and all the rest of it. But what do you do when you get into rehearsal? And, and do you want your dramaturg to speak directly to the actors? And I don't know how everybody feels about that. My feeling, probably because I'm in an educational situation, is the more contact and the more faculty, uh, the more grown-ups I can have in a room with students, interacting, asking questions, um, establishing relationships, learning how to work with people, uh, the better. But that's just a, another question that, that I would throw out in terms of anybody who might be concerned about the crossing of borders. Um, and another issue is this issue of, again, possibly I'm having uh, at this because I've been in an academic situation now, this question of how to apply theory. You know, like what is it that makes Shakespeare directed by a woman um, different? Is it different? Uh, what about cross-gender casting? And how does one employ a dramaturg to track down theories, um, to apply theory? Uh, and can theory be applied? Do we want to apply theory? Uh, is theory an insidious uh, thing that's encroaching through the uh, discipline of performance studies, uh, which is very often a highly theoretical approach to, to a text? 
uh, and, and, and how is that negotiated? Uh, and again, I think that that's another role for the drum turn. Um, okay. Daniel, would you uh, tell us something about what you've been directing and how you have been related to or using a drama tour? Sure. I mean, I would, as a director, I'm very lucky if I get to work with dramaturgs, certain dramaturgs of this caliber. And I think once often, um, I, I think the thing that keeps coming up here, which is, which is really great, is this idea of a, of a field of discovery. I'm always learning with as I'm always learning how to approach this place. And so the, the, thorn, the difficulty of defining the job, I think, really is a part of the job and a part of the process. I mean, we are always figuring it out. So there's no, I don't think there's any kind of set pattern. Um, I mean, that said, there are things that dramaturg, very complicated dramaturg, can be helpful with. Some of those things, for are often handled by a voice of peace or something. So that some of that is crossover. Um, as rare as it is to work with a dramaturg, I mean, the game theater, you will have it. To have both a dramaturg and a voice of peace that's, you know, heaven. Um, uh, so I think they can help if you're cutting the text. Uh, they can be very helpful if you're showing them. What, what you've done, they can tell you what cuts make sense, where, where there might be problems. Um, again, it's a sounding board. Um, certainly the placement of an intermission. Also, just if you have a, whatever, as you begin to articulate as a director, your idea and what you're interested in exploring, the dramaturg may be there for the first week, go away, be able to come back and say, none of that's there. But this is where it's happening, where it's not. Um, and yes, I think they are the person whose ideas are probably more interesting, more articulate, more trenchant than your own. Um, and yet they're, in a, they're not the artistic recommendations. So, so there is a way in which there can really be, uh, I think, kind of trusting and, and very safe relationship there if it's when it's really great. I thought one of the interesting things was when Olivia was talking last night, she referred to. The Winter's Tale, which is our text that we are sort of shaping this around, as being uh, one of the rich late works of Shakespeare, in the same way that uh, Beethoven, uh, Mozart. But I've never heard a conductor say, "Oh, that Ninth Symphony is such a problem symphony. I don't know what to do with all those voices and uh, those instruments and everything, and the magic flute. How difficult! So weird! So..." Strange. And yet we think of this as being a problem play. Why? What's the problem here? <laughs> it didn't seem to be a problem for Shakespeare. They're all problem plays. <laughs> I think they all are. I mean, yeah, we have, you know, it's called a problem play, like sibling names and like all's well. But I mean, God, I think they're all problem plays. They're all hard. Every time I do one, I think, I don't know how to do it. Well, is it a problem just because it's 20th century looks at things differently, or the 19th and 20th century looks at things differently, we assume, than they did in Shakespeare's time? I don't know. I, I suspect part of the reason it's called a problem play is that it resists easy, it resists falling into the category of tragedy or comedy. Um, yeah, for me, it's, it's 
a critical issue that I don't know. It's just not that important to work on. Michael again was talking about the fall in naming things here, comedy and tragedy. <laughs> is that the problem with the play? Is that we have to name well, everything? I, I think that the problem is uh, we need to name everything in name. So including naming those, dividing and placing on something. The levels of love. Actually, certainly there are plays which have a shorter or lesser production history. And uh, one of the sources of knowledge, inspiration, detachment, to detach yourself from the past is to know production history. Mark is a very strong champion of that. And this comes, one of the best things that come from scholars in Europe, in Germany, or France, who do this kind of dossier for the case study of the process of ending up with the production. And that helps solve the problem that these plays happen to be less produced, relatively less produced, because they give more history, <coughs> I suppose. Uh, also, uh, there is a clear to me, but I cannot tell what that does, split let's call it in style or tone. You have a tragic premise. You have Othello, in a sense. You have a nihilistic, self-loathing, and loathing everybody else, jealous man, pushed like it's a redrawing of Othello in Leontes, to a point that is beyond redemption. And then you have the second part, when with an easy theatrical twist, he changes his mind and he is sorry. And that's kind of tough for us, even we accept that we go to a hearing and say we are sorry, I will carry my guilt all the way outside the Navy, you know, <laughs> as captain of the submarine. And that's the most recent example, and the media thrives on that to have this twist. Despite that, when there is such an outlandish switch in the play, we are more comfortable if we think of it in terms of parody. And to do a parody of Winter's Tale would be quite inadvised, I would say. <laughs> However, it is very tempting, and parody sort of floats around very comfortably in the postmodern time. Mark should talk about, he worked on a production of the Gussie, the Dark Hughes director. I was only on the side of that, and also on the side watching, I saw, we can talk a little bit, because my memory helps, how Ima Bergman dealt with Winter's Tale. I don't know if any of you happen to see. So, why don't you learn? Uh, remember Yeah, I get it. It's, there are those plays that, at a certain point, you pick out of Shakespeare that have been, have been given this label, the, the, the problem play. The question that I always have to ask is, who, who's having a problem with it? Uh, eventually, 
I may have a problem. But to start out with, I'd like to believe that you know, certainly, uh, on some level, perhaps even the Elizabethan, Jacobean audience had a problem with it. What do I mean by that? I think, and Michael Tinting perhaps said this a little bit, we forget what a great experimental artist Shakespeare was. We forget what an amazing, amazing things he did. He's talked about as a great poet, great philosopher, great uh, action maker, character maker. But he was constantly doing stuff that nobody else did. You look at Andrew Lyke and what he's doing with gender there, this character is actually this and this. You don't have to go into it. Suddenly, at a certain point in his life, moving in this direction, that's a more contemporary direction about romance. Anytime he had to respond to the current trend, he always did something in response. That was different, and that continues to make him so amazing. There's a great line that I wrote down, not to bore anybody, so I think is really at the key of, of, of the next time I work on the interstate. Uh, first time, was, I, I felt a little at sea, I, I have to say. I felt a little at sea. That's me, not, not the director. But I, as Michael was talking about, we, we go on this odd you know, journey. We used to like to use that word journey. I'm sure Shakespeare thought that was the most puzzling thing in the world to talk about a character's journey. But when we get to the end, this play, you know, time is so critical. Time is so critical. There are actually, and this is I think hard for our generation to understand, our world to understand, you know, maybe, just maybe there are problems that can't be solved. Maybe, just maybe there aren't experts who can deal with certain things. Maybe, just maybe, only time can heal something. And something else called faith. And there's, the last thing I'll say is, repeating this, this line that, you know, in preparation probably you've all read, but I just want to read it. Paulina late in the play, which is an extraordinary gathering, near holy artistic event happening, of, of they're standing in front of, of Hermione, <coughs> Hermione's statue. And Paulina says, it is required you do awake your faith then all stand still, or those that think it is unlawful business I am about, let them depart. That's a really key place to start with this play. And if there are problems, I think that's, that's a good place to start, tool to use. Louis, you've done Winter uh, State, haven't you? Um, how did you approach it? I, I don't know. I, I, I approach things very differently now than just even a few years ago because I just sort of finished this uh, monumental project of trying to figure out how to pronounce all these words, which in, involved a great deal of looking at the verse. And, and one of the things I do now is, is sort of look at the micro part of the play, uh, of look at the language, of look at, look at what, the, what the diction of the play is. And um, one of the things I've become very interested in terms of play is that, you know, just where the, who speaks the prose and who speaks the verse, uh, and, and why, you know, I start asking the question about why is all the prose in Bohemia, and why is all the verse uh, in Sicilian, uh, 
Um, and again, I'm not sure there are answers to any of these questions. There's there's the answer that I come up with, or that you come up with, or the person that answers that question comes up with as, as a way of uh, going into it. But but I do think that one of the, the problems of the play is, is, is I, I think Mark's getting at it, which is a lack of faith that, that might exist in the world among cultured early 21st century artistic people. Um, do we believe in resurrection? Do we believe that someone can be brought back from the dead? Uh, you know, because there's constantly, you know, when I talk to people about the play, students say, well, she was hiding for 16 years, wasn't she? <laughs> didn't, didn't they hide her away there? You know, and, you know, my response is, no, that you, you've got a statue that is transformed into a living, breathing human being. And that's a miracle. You know, and I think it's very hard for us to... Uh, um, to come to grips with that. It may be hard for an audience to come to grips with that, how we present that. There's um, also this, this notion about categorization, you know, how those uh, Shakespeare collective works always build those plays as a romance. You know, the last four plays are always... But, but they're really about reconciliation of families in a way, you know, in which a shattered family, um, you know, whether through time, whether through space, uh, geography, is, is, is reconstructed in some way. Um, so, I don't know, those are the things that, that have always sort of intrigued me thematically. Yes. You know what I mean? And, and then the question becomes, again, how does one put those ideas into practice? You know, what, what is the relationship of father to son? Not father to son, but, but parent to child, husband to wife, you know, you know masquerading with this big jealous thing. Is, is, that, is that what... Is that the way to go about um, you know, staging the scene? Daniel, have you encountered, if you've not done Winter's Tale, I'm not sure, uh, have you encountered similar? Yeah, it's funny. I haven't done Winter's Tale, but I'm about to be similar, and so many of these issues are, are similar, and I think, um, I, I think this notion of parity and, and how easy it is um, you know, to fall into that particular I think it is very dangerous. I think one of the challenges is that the plays ask you not to paralyze. I mean, they ask you to believe in the divine and the miraculous and to really go for that. And that's, I think, very, very hard for us I mean, as artists and audiences that's really one of the great challenges. And also just something that Mark said about that Shakespeare was constantly doing things that nobody else was doing and we forget that. I think we also forget that he was constantly inventing words. He was constantly using words that no one had ever used before. Which meant that people were coming to see the play <coughs> expecting to hear something they had never heard. So for the an audience to be in that place is find an audience today that comes to the play. I want to say something in a, a complementary to that. Uh, one of the things that's uh, also amazing with Shakespeare is that in his late years he faced a different reality or a changing anyhow reality of 
the theatrical scene. And whether they are old romances on good ground or not, I really don't care but his last play, I think, are an expression of his attempting to sort out poetically, theatrically for himself, both the philosophy, the view, the change in the Elizabethan view of the world, and the new developments in the theater, which were Again, labeled by us much later as Jacobi. And while Webster would come with plays that were sort of horrendously violent and very powerful, Shakespeare had to take into account that. And Marlowe's plays were too, which were not Shakespeare kind of plays, but he knew that. As an actor, I had no idea if Shakespeare performed in any other place but his own. Do we know that? Does anyone know that? Yeah, he did. He did. He was in Johnson's Shakespeare. So that was feeding his question. That was feeding his processing for the next day he would write. The other side, of, completely on the opposite side, is his practicality to write plays that will sell, that will be bad form. And also, as any artist that lasts and becomes labeled as great or genius, the French used to say that genius is a long patience. <laughs> it doesn't apply to everybody because I was dealing recently with Bishna and Bishna died at 23. He didn't have that long a patience. <laughs> but, at that point in Shakespeare's career, he had to reshuffle, reprocess things that he has done before in one way and place them on a spiral at another point of this continuous spiral of creativity. <coughs> and I, that no wonder, for instance, that Harold Bloom is talking about Winter's Day in his great book about Shakespeare as the greatest play Shakespeare has written after Henry Ford, Pagod, and Pagod. I am saying, he doesn't say back in this But his top plays, favorite plays, are Henry Ford, Pagod, and Pagod, The Invention of Character, Falstaff, Hamlet somehow fits there too as a character, and then definitely with a still in complexity, in sort of difficulty to overcome the challenges of this improbable plot. And I think your point is very well taken. For us, it's more improbable than it was in their time. And in order to escape the dilemma, I would say, well, this is just clever use of theatrical conventions, which Ingmar Bergman actually did. His production was placed in, at a party. Don't show as we call it. No lines. Songs, dance, in a sort of universe similar to very similar. He has a huge ensemble at the World American Stockholm. And within the party, they performed in an improvisational way, in a, on a small platform at the center of the procedure. 
reconciling, attempting to reconcile this Shakespearean notion that Mitchell was talking about, that the audience and performers are under the same roof. They were all under the same roof on the stage, and we were at the band watching from outside, so he sort of tried to combine it with it and framed it this way. And when time appeared, time appeared on a motorcycle, if I recall for it. to a point that I want to make and take advantage of this moment to make. In my view, as I said earlier, the play that what we get on the stage in performance ought to be is better when it is an equivalent in stage image of what this given company, this director, with the actors, imagine the play to be. And it's a test of the magnitude of talent of those who are at work. Well, in that regard, I open it to, to any answer here. Who keeps possession of what? What does the director possess? And what does the dramaturg possess in this relationship between the dramaturg and the director? Who represents Shakespeare? No one. He doesn't we can read that Shakespeare anybody. We talk, uh, Libby talked about the working, the talk of working with dramaturg word by word, phrase by phrase, to understand, to, to I mean, uh, but is there a controversy in that understanding? Are there two ways of looking at the same word, the same phrase? Uh, and then, in that case, who, who, who possesses that? Well, I more than two ways of looking at the I mean, it's infinite. In many cases, so there's a discussion, there's an argument, there's dialogue, and that might be between the dramaturg, it might be the actor, it might be, I mean, that's really, hopefully, if you get that going, that's, that's where the meaning is. Honda, I'm, I'm puzzled. Are you, are you trying to say that Honda talking about word by word in terms of things, and you said, who possessed? Who is the possessor of the text? Is, is that what you're saying? Yes, who takes, the, who takes uh, ownership of the text at what point? We well, assume the director ultimately has the final word here. Well, I'm just trying to think in the dialogue between the dramaturg and the director, what's that process by which ownership of the text takes place? And I, the ownership of the text makes me rather worry. <laughs> Why? <laughs> well, sometimes the best idea comes from the fact that you have no idea where it comes from. Right. And you make a choice and you do it, and four years later you will do it something else. Right. So, what do you mean by ownership of the text? I mean, what the idea? Where does that idea come from? Tom, is it, you know, is, does it come from the dramaturg? Does it come from the director? Is it a relationship in your own experience? Well, 
what's the magic that's happened there? Mark? Two. Uh, not two. One thing. Try to simplify it. Can I have like five minutes for an anecdote? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I do that with my students too. I say, now I get one anecdote per class. <laughs> Uh, I wouldn't teach you, but I don't have ten. <laughs> I have much to learn from you. Then. Uh, about ten years ago, when I was still at the Seattle Rep, or no, actually twelve years ago, when I first I left the Guthrie and went to the Seattle Rep to work there, um, Dan Sullivan and Doug Hughes. Uh, the very first assignment I had, I literally left the Guthrie where I'd been dramaturgy with Doug Hughes, uh, a production of Harvey, of all things, of course, you have to have a dramaturgy in Harvey. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it started a great relationship. I ended up at Seattle Rep, and I literally hit the concrete bouncing. I bounced in late August. Two days later, I was to be in rehearsal on the production of Measure for Measure. It was the very first Shakespeare Doug had ever directed. 12 years ago. And I came in and I sort of felt an odd sort of pressure about, I kind of you know, really you know, helped Doug along. And at the same time, you know, I really liked working with Doug. And I didn't know the company, so I really felt uncomfortable about offering any kinds of thoughts to the company. I didn't have a chance really to sit down three, four, five months in advance with Doug to work out the text. None of that. It was like, Everything was there, and I was just docking with a moving target. So I got a little bit behind and uh, did not have our usual 10 weeks, 10 weeks uh, at the country that I've gotten used to over nine years. Typically, had three weeks in May, and it was 10 more. No more. Oh, no more. Uh, and so late in the process, I guess we had gotten, we, we kept coming to the ending of the play. Of measure for measure, we talk about problem, and we would sort of, you know, do the scene work, do the scene work, do the scene work, and then we sort of end up with this sort of fuzzy wuzzy, you know, and you know, you know, fuzzy wuzzy Shakespearean ending that I think I call sort of non-ending, where we sort of you know, look at the words and, and trust the Duke to say, and now that's away, and I'll explain what's happened, and everybody gets a big smile on their face, and all the couples couple. Smile and, and leave, you know, uh, and and it was pretty unsatisfying. And Doug, real credit from the start, just seemed just it's really having problems with this ending. And periodically, he'd say, "What does it say in the research about this ending?" And I done I put together sort of a very quick and dirty production notebook that had a history of, of you know, measure for measure production, character analysis, staging, interesting approaches, um, structural. And, and none of them really, you know, gave answer answer to uh, about the ending. Well, we got to the, the, the afternoon of the first reading, and I sort of noticed we had never really, we never really worked out that ending at all. We really didn't have a clue what it was. We got to that, the whole afternoon was supposed to be dedicated to fixing that ending, fixing the ending, fixing the Good luck. Uh, and what happened was something very odd. 
we work for two hours, the actors finally to look at that and say, Doug, what am I doing here? You know, I, 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 I should be so furious at this man. Yeah. You know, he has manipulated me left and right all the way through this play. He's manipulated my brother's future. You know, told me, you know, he's dead, get over it. You know, it's all right, things are going to be just fine. And, and, and in the end, he's asking me to marry him. I just don't understand this. Can't, can't quite grapple with this. And and Doug at a certain point got very frustrated because the clock was me. And he you know, said, let's have a break. And he took me aside this uh, Pancho Theater Forum in the Seattle Rep Theater and said, so, and he was feeling very frustrated. To this day, uh, I, I, I'll never forget. So you talk about who owns it, it's whose responsibility is it? And I was feeling a wave of pain and responsibility coming from Doug. And he, he sort of, and we're very close friends, uh, still dramaturg shows, but he just blurted out, he said, well, Mr. Yale dramaturg, <laughs> <laughs> what, what's the answer? And, and, and I, did, I didn't have an answer. And I had sort of mumbled something about my research that we gone through and this and that. And, and I knew it was, it was pretty flimsy what I was talking about, that it really didn't deal with the action of the moment. And, and you know, Doug, you know, I'm, he sort of apologized. You know, I didn't mean, you know, Mr. Gale Dogger. But, uh, so, the break continued. He went in search of the, the actress, the actor. And I went to the back of the house. Because I was feeling kind of down, humiliated, and just really low. And I took the text with me. And I was sitting there, and I was looking at it, and looking at it, and looking at it. And finally, you know, Doug came back, and he sat by me, and again, he apologized for, you know, putting me on the spot. And I said, he said, but do you have any idea? I said, Doug, I don't know anything about this ending except follow. And that is twice the Duke asked. Isabella to marry him. And twice, she says nothing. And it seems to be in the absence is the, is the answer. Shakespeare doesn't do things casually. He doesn't throw endings away. Things land, even in the midst of what we think is some sort of glorified, happy ending. You know, much of you about nothing. And, and he said, so what does that mean, that she's not responding? And I again said, well, you know, look at what she's gone through. And he said, but what's the action? He said, what is she doing then? And I said, well, I can, all I can tell you is what I would do. And I said, that is, when I was at the Guthrie, and you think you can testify to this too, uh, I was in so many meetings, so many you know, meetings where there's tons of pressure, and some would say, what do you think, Mark? We've got a marketing problem here. What do you think? <laughs> and I always wanted to be able to sort of pull back, go away, and go away to that space that we all have, that place as artists that we all go to, to figure out something. It's a place of quiet, a place of solitude. And I said, I think that's what she wants to do, too. It's very complicated what's going on. And it seems to me the one thing she understands is a relationship to God, where she thinks she does. And 
I think that she perhaps kneels down in front of this whole public assembly and prays. And when the Duke, you know, everybody's watching this, and the Duke is trying to keep the ball, the jolly ball in the air, everything is great now, everything is great, everything is great. And the last time he you know, suggests to her, I'd like to get married, nothing happens. And there's a, there is a big, ugly dash next to that. And then suddenly he'd say, and then let's away, and we shall talk about the days of Amphalova. And I said, well, I think she's left alone on the stage. Everybody is walking away, particularly the women, are looking back at her and what's going on in her life. And so he went to the, the actor, talked to her about it, worked it out, and other responsibility, ownership, we worked on it, we worked on it during previous finesse and all sorts of things. But essentially that's what happened. She was left praying, her eyes opened up, she looked at this enormous sort of Huey Long poster of the Duke that was hanging back with this 20-foot poster and blackout on that. And what really was made me so happy was going to the symposiums and hearing everybody talk about their points of view about what happened at the end. Five or six different opinions about that was really great, Mr. Hughes, that you represented her plight as a woman. That was really great, Mr. Hughes, you did this. And to me, that was successful because then that made the audience have a sign of ownership responsibility about it. And, and that made me happy. But I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything. I love Thanks anecdotes. for bearing my anecdote. <laughs> I love anecdotes because I, I heard a scientist talking once uh, uh, comparing anecdotes to scientific uh, research. He said anecdotes are things that really happen. We're going to have a second session. Uh, we have a lot more questions to ask of our dramaturgs, but uh, we only have about 20 minutes more in this session, so I'd like to throw it open questions from you and then we will break and then have a second session. Yes. Well, uh, if I can first say something about ownership, I worked for many years as a humor consultant to IBM and some other big corporations and they did, the corporations do ownership, who owns the project. And for them it's the same thing, who can I blame if it fails? <laughs> so, that's what it means. <coughs> um, this, what does the dramaturg say? in Winter's Tale to this thing of the prose and the verse of Act 1, if I may, and Act 2, what's your answer to the director? Or do you say, play it? I mean, the prose scans just as well as the verse, so it, it really doesn't, uh, it really doesn't seem to matter, but what's your answer to a director of that question? Hey, how come prose uh, for Polixene and Camillo in Act 2? and I'll come first for them in Act 1. First, let me tell you something about the credit and the blame. <laughs> One of the definitions that I love most about being, or having a job as a dramaturg is that you don't get any credit, <laughs> but at least you don't get blame. <laughs> now, for the clause and the verse. I don't know. I, I don't know if the director will ask the question. I don't think it's a question that 
needs to be asked before you go through readings and see how this shape. Partially it is the way certain characters speak. Partially it's the way certain characters speak in certain circumstances. There is a whole tenet that when there is more formality, more rhetorical art into what is said, they go into birth. When there are crowd that prevails, shepherds, there, there is no uh, but you are right, I think, about the scanning, and one of the masters looking at Shakespeare text as a, an expression of rhetorical art, John Barton, who should be listened to and taken in with critical view at the same time. And Peter Hall is also a very staunch believer in scanning all the time. So when you listen to a Peter Brook production based on this approach that comes from uh, John Barton, you it seems that there is only one voice speaking. No matter who speaks, it, there, there might be difference in timbre, but the overall tone is very similar. Some of you might have seen Dwellers and Cressida. I have not seen it, but that might be a testing ground. It's done in New York, right, by Peter Hall. Somebody told me that they all sound the same. Uh, I've seen uh, his midsummerizing and Measure for Measure, in which she didn't do what you just described and it's with his try to work with this. So I don't know what if the director would ask me, I would say, it doesn't matter, just do what the line says, see what the meaning is in what they say, see how these characters interact, what they try to express. I came around Dr. McMahon was saying that he has been developed and refined his notion of what we are doing as dramaturgs. And I remember being on a panel with Arthur Ballard, and he infuriated me by saying that he hates concept. I said, well, we need to get something. Without concept, it's an empty mind. I came all the way around. Concept is not something that's predetermined. It emerges, but it has to be one. Good. Next question. Yes. Uh, I think that your students are probably not the only ones who jump to the conclusion that Hermione was hidden away in a you know, basement. Um, so how do you, and this is for anybody, how do you help the audience believe that it's a statue that's going that way? The question is, how do you help uh, the audience to believe that the statue has truly come back to life if that is the belief of the director, that, that there's a resurrection, that Lazarus has been raised. Me? Yes. <laughs> I, well, I, I don't know. I think it's got to be. I would make a joke and say it depends on your designer and, you know, how you costume and all the rest of that. But I really don't think it's that. I think it's, the, I think it's the acting of it. I think it's the playing of it. I think it's the difference in whether your actors are witnessing a miracle or whether they're seeing a trick or whether there's something being revealed. Um, and... and you know, I think when we go back to this, it, it all comes down to the actor. I mean, Ming was getting at it about the actor in space at the beginning, and Pokemon is the actor. And, and that's what makes it happen. You know, whatever we, you know, determine, ultimately you're putting it in the hands of your actors to, you know, 
to, to see that God descend, to see that statue come back to life, to see whatever miracle uh, occurs uh, in, in the later part of the later place. I, I, I agree. And I, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm finding more recently that the Theodore Hamlet, for whatever the, the talk on and on about works or another word about that production, but, but the possibility of believing that you're seeing the ghost, I think, it, for me, was very present just because there was, you know, there wasn't any smoke, there wasn't, there wasn't a body light, and it was really just a man walking across the space, and, oh my God, that's a ghost. So the supernatural I'm finding right now can come through often in a way that's, that's when you're at your most simple, when you're most real, the capacity for the play to be most, most miraculous. But it's a, it's a part of Yes. I'd like to back again your observation of being very really simple, but I also want to address something that was raised before the I think that we are living in a time now that allows us to embrace this. I mean, look at all um, the holistic healing that's going on. I mean, you know, look at what we're learning about the power of the mind. We have to remember that we are a Western culture that is suddenly forced to embrace Eastern cultures that have had traditions of this, you know, the embracing of spirituality and powers of the mind. So I think we're in a very fertile ground to embrace a play like this, you know, and also to make choices that are very simple and very naked, to focus back on the power of the human condition. That's this, though. I just want to say that I, whenever I hear myself saying simple, I start to question, like, well, what is that? What do you really mean? Um, you know, sitting and designing in the world, simple I am. So I'm a little uneasy with that, with that word. Well, we know that simple is very hard to achieve, and, and I'm sure that Ming can tell you a simple set is far more expensive than... <laughs> Ming? Yeah. Actually, I am interested in that question as to whether the mighty actually is dead and therefore resurrected as a statue or she has been alive and hiding. Because what is, to all of you, for the dramatist of the director, what if Paulina said, have I been hiding her and I'm just telling tales about this Italian sculpture and doing all this? Or, or she, is this really a real statue? Because I think that affects how Paulina say all the lines. So what would be your answer? I don't know. I don't. I haven't worked on the play, so I wouldn't feel comfortable. But therefore, I'm asking some of your drama Let's say, let's say Doug Q say. So Yale drama because that makes a very big difference because Paulina can do a wing. Or she is deadly serious that this is a statue. 
Are you responding to the question back there, or do you have a next question? Presenting this as sculpture, why isn't the sculpture 16 years older? Why is it 16 years older? It has age. It has age. Sculpture has age, as she would have aged 16 years later. So, only it keeps on berating also have to come before the director begins to shape out of their own knowledge of the play how they're going to present conceptually. Have you had experience dramaturgs in working with your director so that the concept came out of your preliminary meetings or have you been talking with directors who already have a concept and you're working with that to see if it works? I it's probably 50-50 happened that way. Uh, the, the get back to I mean, I mean this, is a, this is such a hard question. Of course I and I was here. And 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 I suppose one answer is that something about well until I get in until I do that three months of, of research and working with the director and hearing someone like you talk about your thoughts about that physical presence there, statue, human being, what is that? Uh, and, and being in rehearsal with those words and with those actors. And I think this is, to me, it comes down, it does come down to something about why does that actor playing that character need those words at that point? And, and then I have to back away from that a little bit and say, because that actor who's playing that character understands that you know maybe he's you know 16 years ago he got very contrite very quickly after you know he learned of his alleged death and all that and, and the question becomes well why couldn't she you know why couldn't it happen then and it's because something about that character Paulina understands that neither of them would be ready would have been ready then. And she's got, and I think this is a great point about, she's visiting her two or three times a day. Yeah. 
is really, I mean, to me, that's where the answer lies. Those visitations for 16 years and two or three times a day visitation, her growing understanding of what's going on in that human being's mind in relation to the redemption that's happening, the possibility of some kind of forgiveness. In the same way with him, we all go to that place, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. But that's not the same thing. And Paulina understands that. So that's not an answer, but the best Mr. Yale writer can give you. did you have a... Yes, it's just fascinating to me. And um, what's wonderful is that out of this discussion has come from both dramaturgs and directors and designers. Um, the fact that the text could support a, one interpretation or another. And it seems to me that from this open discussion, it's what then flares off in the director's gut and heart from that discussion that makes the interpretation of that production valid. Because then the director is looking through the actors to achieve that. But I think this is just absolutely marvelous because I've, I've often wondered about property and territory and who, if not owns it, you know, would I as a director have to be so influenced by that absolute textual definition that my own feelings about it, and I don't mean way off from the text, because hopefully anyone who has classical text has some knowledge and does that work, but you know, how restricted am I by what a dramaturg, you know, might Textually, and I think what what doesn't have to be restricted is informed. You are absolutely expanded, but even here, because of what we've all seen, it's given room to the fact that if my feeling is for a mystical, magical interpretation, I could say that Paulina was visiting two or three times a day and praying at that statue. You know, finding within her own forgiveness or what was happening. Or if I wanted to go with the fact that um, Hermione was being hidden and Paulina, Paulina was uh, trying to find the right moment in time with her for when she emerges as a woman again, um, that's another, I mean, I just think this is just wonderful what I'm saying. I, I, I think
if these two are duplicates, I don't need to go to Washington or to New York. I just take another print, another edition of the same beauty as this. How this comes along is a process in which to exclude the actors involved is as wrong as to assume that only the drama took has the power or the responsibility to make a decision or impose a decision. All the restrictions that I believe could or should come from the drama would amount to that. <laughs> you see me? No, I'm not seeing <laughs> And have questions. And it should come from a point where the drama foreseeing or attempting to foresee the result is questioning the validity of this possible result and its implications and the meaning that would be in turn constructed by the audience. I hate when the audience somebody says, that's the question that says, why is that symbol that I saw there? Come on, either you see the symbol tell me or you don't see it or you see a different symbol than I intend. Thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. 
This program was made possible by support from Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members.